Hello and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. On this Bad Beats episode, we will explore the human side of real estate investing with a seasoned pro about to make the legendary worst deal of their life. A deal isn't just the investment, it is also the person. Stay with us and learn what it takes to be the best investor. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. I am your host, Scott Royal-Smith, the owner of Royal Legal Solutions, the one-stop shop for everything real estate investor-related. Uh, we're also giving away free LLCs right now at Royal Legal Solutions. That's seriously free LLCs. The only thing that you pay for is a state-mandated filing fees, which you're going to have to pay anywhere you go. Uh, we're going to do all the rest of the work for you. Um, it's a deal so good that the legal zoom rocket lawyer or wherever you're looking at online, this is the only best deal. And it's from an actual law firm. So you can know that it's right. So free LLCs at Royal legal solutions. If you click on the show notes or contact us, that's how you're going to get it. Um, today though, I am, we are talking about, uh, syndications and crowdfunding, and we're going to give you guys the inside look, uh, from, from myself, uh, and from my guests here today about how do you know when your crowdfunding deals that are going to syndication is going to be a good deal or when you can start seeing some red flags that says, this is actually gonna turn out to probably be something bad. So um, thank you so much for coming on the show here today uh, to join me. If, uh, if you wanna kind of set the stage for us, so everybody knows you know, who you are, your background, and, and what kinds of um, experience that you have that, to really give us the insights uh, that, uh, about these syndication deals and crowdfunding. Sure, my name is Mark Roderick, and I'm here to talk about estate planning. No, that's a joke. <laughs> um, yeah, so I have spent a great deal of my career representing, well, my whole career representing entrepreneurs and a great deal of it representing real estate entrepreneurs. Um, and over the last five years, well, when I saw the Jobs Act coming on the horizon back in 2012, which is, wow, seven years ago now, um, almost, well, within a month, it'll be seven years exactly, and I realized that crowdfunding was going to be this super cool, disruptive, transformative phenomenon, finally bringing the power of the internet to the capital formation industry. I said, this, this is just something that's you know, going to be a lot of fun. And I decided to get involved. So for the last five years, that's all I've been doing. I, I do real estate crowdfunding and all kinds of other crowdfunding from every conceivable vantage point for issuers and investors and portals and everyone in between. So that's what I do. That's cool, Mark. And, and just so everybody kind of has an idea, because I think a lot of times people, you know, they think attorney um, and they don't, they don't realize the complexities of the different levels of work that attorney attorneys do. So there's probably, um, you know, what's the right way to think about it? It's usually like you have your basic syndication deals that you're helping people with of how can they pull together some friends and family and be able to get into a deal. And I would think that when you start going to the crowdfunding space and looking at those regulations, it's you got to know everything that's about the, the typical syndication plus how does that all relate to like a new space. And so that's actually kind of like a, a specialty in a way or a focus in a way of, um, things that are even more difficult. Is that fair to say? That is. And that is a very astute question. You're the first one who ever asked me that question. Um, well, so, being an attorney and myself, I'd yeah, like to give us an opportunity to that, brag uh, about, you know, people that are really not good. Surprising. Yeah. <laughs> now understand to ask that question. So what one of the, you know, cool and very challenging aspects of, of doing what I do, crowdfunding, is 
as you know, as a lawyer, the American securities laws were all created in the 1930s as a reaction to the Great Depression. Um, uh, and so that's why we have a Securities Act of 1933 and an Exchange Act of 34 and a Trust Indenture Act of 39 and an Investment Advisors Act of 40. It's, it all comes back to those laws and, and that's not coincidental. So needless to say, people were not thinking about the internet and online transactions in 1933. Maybe by 1934, they were thinking about them. No, they weren't thinking about them at all. And so what we have now, I mean, crowdfunding is this mixture, not to say this, no, I don't want to say a clash, but this mixture of very, very modern internet-based social media with very old, long-standing securities laws. And those two things come together, you know, like the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean around the Cape of, of Good Horn, and they make for the stormiest waters in the world. And, and so that is a lot of what you get. Um, how these rules, how a 1933 statute is to be interpreted in a world of online instantaneous e-commerce is not always obvious. And you get these old, the, for example, the Investment Company Act is not typically something we used to have to think about a lot in real estate syndications, but in the online world, we think about it all the time and very complex um, permutations and legal structures. So this all, all comes into play. And so it's really challenging. But as you know, as a lawyer, you know, what's, what doesn't kill you, you know, makes you better. And it's fun. It is fun to figure it out. Um, so well, you yeah, get to be it, the ones to set the trends, right? I mean, if you're on the front lines of yes. it and you're the ones talking about it, you're like, this is actually what makes sense. One thing I found in, in my experience in the law was that um, you can actually, you can kind of know where people are going to go if you see where they've been, right? You can say, these are actually the kind of the thrusts of where uh, the principles by which the law is operating by. And even in a new space, you can have a, a really good idea of where they're going to be going because you're like, okay, we have those laws to protect against certain kinds of behaviors. They're probably going to try to protect against those same kind of behaviors here in the future, even though it's in a new new context of how people treat each other and whatnot. Um, is, is, and, that, is that, are those parallels clear in your, uh, they, in your work that's too? That's absolutely correct. And um, if only... Uh, lawyers at large law firms a couple years ago in 2017, if lawyers with Ivy League credentials at large law firms had only had the insight that you just articulated, um, the cryptocurrency space wouldn't be the mess. I'm going to use a word that you can use on family TV. Quagmire is a good one too. Quagmire. <laughs> that, it, that it is today. Yeah. Um, because of course, I mean, look what you had in, in August of 2017, you had ordinary Americans um, and ordinary folks from all over the world, Koreans and Chinese and everyone, but, or, you know, Uber drivers investing their life savings, which wasn't much in these new things, you know, these cryptocurrencies that 
they certainly didn't understand. Very few people did understand. And so you ask yourself, you know, the question was, well, is that a security? Well, what are the securities laws intended to, to do? Well, they're intended to protect those very people, those Uber drivers who are investing their life savings. So somehow the lawyers at big firms convinced themselves that no, crypto, this is something brand new in the universe, never been seen. So of course these laws, none of these old laws can apply when it was so obvious that what you just said was in fact the answer, which is that of course they apply. They are intended to protect people in exactly these situations, you know, from investing their life savings into something that nobody understand and hasn't been explained. Um, and the world, yeah, so I'm, I'm giving you too long of an answer, but that insight yeah. is absolutely spot on. Oh, I think that's a, one of the, 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 the neat uh, pieces that comes into play here with uh, something that I work on. Uh, we, we do a lot of series LLC work for real estate investors, right? And so we'll hear it time and time again in the same place. It's like, well, we don't have, you know, hundreds of court cases on how these things are going to be treated and, and what they're supposed to do and how it's going to come across. And that's always my um, explanation is saying like, you know, these, um, what you look for is like, what are the fundamental precepts that are behind something, anything that's new before it's tested by the courts? You ask yourself, what is the risk in that? Or what do you think the courts would actually do? How confident can we be in that? Uh, but I think that actually takes some actual understanding what you learned in law school, instead of just cramming for tests and, and, and shoving stuff out, because you actually have to understand you know, a lot of how laws are actually created and how statutes are interpreted and, and what are people really trying to mm -hmm. get at. Um, and I don't think like investors really typically or, or the common business person really has the, the skills or training or maybe even the desire to really think deeply about those. So it's really our responsibility to, um, to bring that voice out, which is something I know that you're passionate about doing um, and speaking, you know, in, in all kinds of, of huge venues. I know that you've, you've done quite a bit just in, in Google searching um, in preparation yeah. for this interview that you're everywhere. If anybody looks up uh, Mark Roderick, uh, uh, securities uh, attorney, you're going to see all kinds of great stuff. So um, it's, uh, it's, it's, well, a, it's this quite is a pleasure. The thing. I am, I am evangelical about the crowdfunding space um, because I really, <laughs> I would tell me to, you know, lower my voice if I start getting up on a soapbox here, but so for too long and, and up to and including the, the present day, you know that in America and around the world, we have these income and wealth inequality issues that in some ways underlie so many uh, aspects of our social and political dysfunction. It is, we, when I was a kid, as, as old people always say, we, we really didn't have this situation. I, I had a paper route in Arlington, Virginia, which is a close-in suburb of Washington, D.C., where a lot of, you know, big politicians used to live. And, and on my paper route, I happened to have the house of George Schultz, who was then Secretary of the Treasury, a very well-known guy. And he had a nice house, but not particularly nice, it, nothing like the typical McMansion. And he lived on a street with neighbors, just like everybody else, didn't live in a gated community, drove a normal car. And 
you know, without getting uh, like the past is always better kind of thing, but um, we didn't have the severe inequality that that we have today. And uh, in the investment universe, that has translated into the wealthy get wealthier and the non-wealthy don't because the best investments have been reserved for very, very wealthy families uh, that has allowed, you know, over the last 25 years, you've seen the numbers, the top, you know, 0.01% has just gone into the stratosphere. So anyway, crowdfunding holds the opportunity for ordinary people, even if they're accredited investors, which is, you know, maybe 10 million Americans, ordinary people to share in this wealth creation. And as such, uh, um, you know, and going over the heads of, of the Wall Street brokerage firms so that real estate developers and uh, investors can connect directly. And it's a, I think, just a truly, truly great opportunity to sort of re-democratize uh, capitalism. Um, and one of my clients, a, a senior housing uh, developer called Tapestry, in fact, just raised more than $13 million on, a, uh, on the CrowdStreet platform, um, which is great for the developers, but 281 Americans got to participate in that institutional quality deal and will reap the benefits long-term. And um, so <laughs> that was a long response to why do you see me everywhere? I, I, I wanna tell people, I, I wanna get the, the word out about this opportunity, not only for the entrepreneurs and the developers, but for ordinary Americans to participate in this brand new uh, opportunity. I know it's a fantastic thing. And I think it's important with any new opportunities that you stay, you know, you're aware of what the opportunity is and the risks and the, the benefits that go with it. Um, and so a lot of times what I see as principal concerns with that is these are, these are people that are investing in a lot of times the people they've never met on, on properties they've never seen. Um, and they have different uh, ways of having um, confidence and what that deal is going to look like. Um, so some of the times when I see some of these deals or deals that I put into, um, I'll look for things, anything that I can catch as a red flag. And sometimes with my, one of my best red flag um, things to know, like, hey, that's a deal to stay away from because you, you, uh, you, you become a really great investor is actually saying no to a ton of deals, yeah. right? Um, and uh, so that's what I kind of look for. One of, the, one of the first things that I'll look at is um, the operating agreement itself to say, you know, what is a, what do, and, and see, you know, are there any red flags that are in these operating agreements that make me think, hey, you know, this is actually uh, something that, that really puts me way too much at risk, that this guy could actually do all kinds of different things and to just steal everybody's money well within his rights legally to, to be able to do so or would have a, a tip or a trick to it. Do you look at something different for that or do you have a typical checklist of things that you go through for um, analyzing crowdfunding deals to see how they're structured? Well, the... The first, um, the first thing that I do is to uh, ask myself where the deal, why am I seeing this deal? Where am I seeing it? Um, I have a luxury that I represent a lot of terrific developers. So I know who they are. 
um, you know, um, and and I know their their reputations. I know their integrity. So, um, but if I'm coming at this fresh and giving advice to an investor, the first thing I say is only invest either with someone you know, like really know, or through one of the few really reputable platforms like CrowdStreet, like RealCrowd. Um, and the reason, of course, is that those platforms, uh, their business models are based on presenting high quality deals from high quality sponsors. And uh, if I just do a search on the internet and look, you know, look for somebody, where can I invest my money? I just have no idea who that is. So the, the, my first order of business, it's kind of like retail, you know, if I want to buy a nice watch or a nice shirt, um, and I don't necessarily know a lot about, I'm not a watch or a shirt expert, and I'm not an expert on either of those things, what do I do? I, I go in a good store. Um, and that's what the online platforms are. They are stores for investment. So that's, that's where I began. And then I would sort of start looking at the documents from there. Yeah, I think that's important to know first. You know, you got to know the, the, the broader scope of, of who you're actually working with uh, before you actually get into yourself because the who is the, is the real ticket, right? Is, is how you really know whether projects work or not. You can have a great set of plans. You can have all the documentation. You know, it really all comes down to the team. You know, who's the team of the deal maker, the attorney and the CPA, and maybe the, if you're working on like new construction, who's actually going to be the construction company that comes in to, to really do the work. Um, those are the four that I typically hit whenever I'm checking a deal to see, you know, to kind of scope it out from 10,000 feet up. Is there anything else that you look at, but, you know, besides those, you know, four principles? Track record. I'm looking to see what the sponsor's track record is. Is this the sponsor's first time in this niche? The deal I just told you about where they raised all that money. I mean, this is a company that whose principles have been in the senior housing space for the last 35 years and have a terrific track record. So look, real estate, investing in private real estate deals is risky, right? Otherwise we would just, you know, put all of our life savings in two deals and rub our hands together and say, ah, oh, we're, we're all set for life. They are risky deals. And uh, who knows what's going to happen next year? The real estate market has been going up, 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 and only up for the last 10 years. We're due for a downturn. Some deals are going to fail. Um, and the best you can do, I think, is to get in bed, figuratively, not literally, with a, a reputable uh, sponsor. Now, from there, my next checkoff item would be make sure that under the operating agreement, I am not obligated to put in any more capital than I paid. So that seems obvious, but as you know, in some real estate deals, there are such things as capital calls. So I put in $25,000 and I think that's it, but what, lo and behold, the sponsor has the right, if he needs more money, to ask me for money and to penalize me if I don't put it in. And um, I want to make sure that my operating agreement has, has no such provision. I want to make sure that the entity is structured properly so that creditors, 
you know, if there's a bank and it sues the entity that they can't sue me. So I am, I am trying to mitigate my risk. That is my, I want to make sure that if I've committed $25,000 to the deal, that is the maximum. Um, and beyond that, I will tell you, because I'm a connoisseur of operating agreements, I read the operating agreement. And if it's a mess, as too many are, then that pushes me away. Because if the sponsor, that means the sponsor wasn't willing to hire a lawyer who knew how to write an operating agreement. So maybe that's kind of how the sponsor does things, cuts corners, and I just I don't want to be involved with that. So I, you know, I write so many of these things, as I'm sure you do, that I can tell very quickly <laughs> whether it's a high quality product. And you don't need to be a lawyer to be able to tell whether it's a high quality product or right. I mean, like whenever I've looked at some of these operating agreements before, I'm like, oh, well, basically you can tell us like how well organized is this information, yeah. you know? Is there parts in here that just blatantly conflict with each other? You know, like in here, like those are some of the big pieces I look at and say, oh, okay, this probably tells me almost all I really need to know about this person yeah. uh, is their operating agreement. And, and for me anyways, is because I look at that and I say, if you don't care enough to, to say that the rules we're going to all play by are important to you and that you're taking my money on the, on the precept of here's the rules we agree we're all going to play by in this game, you don't care about that then you're probably not going to care when things go sideways. And we actually have to start figuring stuff out as adults of like, we're in a tough spot, you know? Yep. That is, um, that is absolutely correct. You, you see, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. And so very often yesterday, for example, someone showed me an operating agreement and it, it was basically a 1983 operating agreement. You know, it was, it was that. It was the old, antiquated, no longer relevant stuff. And that, you know, what did that tell me? That someone's not paying attention to some, some important things. And um, maybe they're not paying attention to who they hire as a contractor either. You know, yeah. I don't know. But there, there are enough good deals out there so that you don't you don't have to invest in in deals that seem to have problems at the outset. That's that's the good news. That's the good news, right? You just got to do the hard work of going through those deals. Now, I have a a, a lot of people here that listen to this show are um, people that um, are looking to start funds, and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to bring you on the show here today to so to get some information um, for them about. Um, what is the, um, you know, besides just hearing it from me, right, um, to hear it from, from somebody else um, that's respected in the field about, you know, what are the um, levels of, let's call them like levels of difficulty that you go into funds. Like if you do a fund like this, it's the easiest kind of fund to start. And that might be, you know, it's accredited investors that are your friends and family, right? Like everybody has the highest level of connection to you and also has the appropriate net worth um, as, as a credibility. And then the levels of, of how difficult it is to, to start some of these other funds. How do those chunk up in difficulty um, to kind of give them advice on uh, or some guidance rather on um, um, what they should be looking to create that are things that are easy and that things that are difficult because that's what I think something we always run into as attorneys like 
uh, that people are saying, well, you, I want to create a fund. Well, how much is it? Well, it's, you know, this many, you know, thousands of dollars to be able to create that. And they're like, well, I had no idea it was going to be so difficult. I was like, well, if you did it differently, you know, there, there's cheaper ways to accomplish this goal. Um, and they have to understand the relative complexities to be able to understand why, why do prices change, right? Um, into that. Um, so I was wondering, can, what is the easiest um, type of, of fund to start with? What's the criteria for that? Well, I will go back and talk about the word fund in a second, but okay. the, the easiest fund using that in, in its most generic sense is just as you suggested, accredited investors only and fewer than a hundred people. And if you do both of those things, you can, you're allowed to do almost anything if you have a hundred or fewer accredited investors. And let me just note again, because I find it helpful, and, and I think clients do, this concept of accredited investors that we hear all the time, just a brief explanation of why that's important. So going back, way, way, way back, 85 years ago into the 1930s when our securities laws were created, there have been a few foundational principles. One of those principles, is that rich people can take care of themselves. They can hire people like you and me. They can hire lawyers, they can hire accountants, investment bankers. And so they're not gonna get ripped off. They're rich, they can pay for advice. Whereas non-rich people cannot pay for lawyers and accountants and therefore need the paternalistic arm of the government around their shoulders to protect them from all the bad guys out there. And whenever I say that, I sound sarcastic, but I'm actually not. That system has worked very, very well. Rich people can take care of themselves. And that is why permeated through any discussion of securities laws, even in 2019, there are some rules for accredited investors and there are other rules for non-accredited investors. And that's why a fund with only accredited investors is easier for you as the fund sponsor because the law assumes that all your investors can take care of themselves and don't need a lot of regulations to protect them. So that's why the answer to the question is what it is. The hundred number, people are saying, well, where's that coming from? Hundred, never heard of that before. That's an investment company act issue. So we have this statute, huge statute, Investment Company Act of 1940, that applies to companies that qualify as investment companies. Investment companies are companies that invest in other companies. <laughs> in other words, rather than build widgets itself or rather than develop real estate itself, the investment company goes and invests in companies that build widgets or develop real estate. Think of a mutual fund. A mutual fund is a classic investment company. And investment companies are subject to gigantic, horrible regulation and we don't wanna be one. So, under the Investment Company Act, one of the exceptions, most widely used exception, is as long as you have no more than 100 owners, you are not an investment company, which is good. So that's why the combination of accredited investors only and no more than 100 is easiest. 
once we, if we vary either of those rules, things start to become more complicated. Yeah, I would think that they, they definitely do become, you know, more complicated. And I think that's why a lot of people starting out that it's really important to uh, get, you know, only use and credit our investors for your first um, fund. Uh, or, and, and when I, when I do, when I'm talking about fund, I'm usually thinking about, you know, people that are much smaller, right? Like it's, you know, maybe 10 people, 15 people, a lot of times that are inside of these deals pulling with real estate. Is there a particular differentiation in the terms that you like to use that are more specific, um, than the term fund? If that, if that term is too general for what are the context that we're using? No, unfortunately there, there are no more specific, um, labels, but, so, you know, sometimes fund means we're just going to buy a bunch of apartment buildings. Sometimes fund just means multi-asset. We're going to buy, instead of buying one apartment, we're going to buy a bunch of apartment buildings. We're still going to call that a fund as opposed to a single asset entity. But in that case, where we own the real estate directly, then we're not subject to the Investment Company Act. On the other hand, sometimes people use fund to mean... For example, I got an email for yesterday from a fellow from Canada who wants to create a company that will not build widgets itself, but will make investments in a whole bunch of other companies, right? Like a mutual fund. Yeah, like a fund of funds in a sense, right? A fund, kind of a fund of funds. So yeah. he calls that a fund, but that company is the classic, the paradigm of an investment company. So we do have to worry about the Investment Company Act. So fund just means lots of things. And then if his company, for example, invested in 50 real estate deals, um, if it's just a limited partner, then he is subject to the Investment Company Act. But if he's the general partner in each of those 50 deals, he's not subject to the Investment Company Act. So we start... We, you start getting start pretty getting big down the rabbit holes pretty, pretty quickly, bigger. don't you? Now, now let me let me ask you this question: Where yeah. where geographically are you located? I'm located in Austin, Texas, and but the okay. the, the investors that work with us are all over the country. So okay. it comes into. I know there's a lot of state regulations that can also play come into place here. Well, somewhere. yeah, I'm not going to talk about state regulation right now. But so if you're from the East Coast or the West Coast or Austin, <laughs> we. We have a mindset that says first fund accredited investors only. Because for us, we know a lot of accredited investors. I mean, they're in it, right? But out in the heartland of America, and I have I have clients out in the lots out in the heartland, accredited investors are more rare. Um you know, the wealth is really concentrated in our country and increasingly so. That's part of the whole inequality thing. Um, and of course, the cost of living in the heartland is a lot lower. But the definition of accredited investor is not based on cost of living. It's just an absolute number. So you have a lot fewer accredited investors in the middle of the country. So if I'm talking to someone... Uh, in Indiana, for example, have a number of clients in, in Indiana, they, they don't want to be limited to accredited investors. So when I say, well, the easiest way is to deal with accredited investors, they say, well, that's going to rule out a whole heck of a lot of people out here. So we have to factor that into account 
you know, that's a different conversation depending on what the audience is, what the demographic of the area is. Well, that, I think that's an important piece to go to because I think that's where everybody goes to next if they said, well, hey, you know, I got, you know, people that I know, you know, friends and family, but they're not accredited. Um, is that the next level of difficulty or the next level of complexity? Say, yes. if you can't do accredited, go unaccredited um, investors. And I still think there's a number that's associated typically with that. They try to say is it that to try to keep it under, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's 35. So in a in a deal um, under Rule 506B as in Bravo, you can have up to 35 non-accredited investors per deal and as many accredited as, as you'd like. So that is typically where you go. Now, when you go into Rule 506B, as opposed to 506C, that has a couple implications. One, because there are non-accredited, now here's the government. The government has to come in, protect these people. They're not wealthy. And what that means is you have to give these folks a lot more information about the investment, which for the sponsor just translates into you spend, you pay the lawyer some more money to provide more information. But equally or more important, it means that you cannot advertise the deal to people you don't know. You can go to your friends and neighbors and contacts and all those people, but you can't just put up a website that says, look at this beautiful multifamily project. Um, look at all these pictures. We're trying to raise a million and a half dollars. You can't just put up that website for the whole world to see. You're limited in advertising under 506B. But hey, they call it capitalism for a reason. So if you need to raise capital from non-accredited investors, that's what you do. And then if you need to do the advertising component, that's where you go into some of the most complex pieces, right? Which is under the 506C and that's what crowdfunding uh, is operating underneath. Is that right? Well, almost. I mean, almost. once you, yes. Yeah, you can advertise in 506C, but if you do 506C, you can't have any non-accredited investors. That's the thing. So you're always driven. Again, it is it is capitalism. You're driven by where you can get the capital. And if the person says to you, listen, I can raise $1.2 million, but it's not all going to be from accredited folks, then you're going to be in Rule 506B. Mm -hmm. The next phase would be, which is a huge jump up in complexity and cost, is Regulation A. And Regulation A does allow you to raise lots and lots of money from both accredited and non-accredited and allows you to advertise, but that's a whole like a semi-IPO process. That's a whole process with the SEC, takes a long time, costs a lot of money. Yeah, I think most people that are you know, trying to make that transition of saying, hey, I've been a successful real estate investor on myself personally. Um, and now I'm starting to think I want to start doing some deals and, and raise some some cash uh, really falls underneath those those first two that I've come into um, that I've helped her are either like around the accredited investor uh, with under 100 um, or they're the doing, uh, you know, the unaccredited route, but having less than the 35. Has that been your experience where most people yes. are needing help? 
Yep. Okay. That is that is still the typical uh, the typical real estate syndication. And um, I know it's like a, a core part of your business. One thing that I always get, you know, all the time from attorney or from, from investors um, and something I like to speak about as attorney and, and I was going to ask you about it too, is um, the criteria that, that investors or, or people that are hiring professionals that are in this space, what they should be looking for to know who's, who's good and who's a chump, you know, that it comes into it. Cause a lot of people say they can do the work, right. But there's a really huge Delta, especially in attorney work between what's quality work that's actually going to save you money and make your life easier in the long work and what stuff that's just kind of sloppily kind of thrown together uh, by, you know, two people, they're both saying they're attorneys, but the work product isn't even close on how much it actually benefits you as a, as an entrepreneur to getting to the next level. So um, could you share with us maybe like a, a top three or a top five um, things that you would use to rule out um, syndication attorneys of saying, you know, who's good and, and, and who would be somebody that you would say, Hey, that person's not going to be hmm. the one you want to use. Well, of course I'm biased. Um, you j just like if you're hiring, you know, you don't want to hire a guy to do the plumbing in your house if he's never done plumbing before. <laughs> um, so you want to, in some way, assure that the professional you're hiring has, is very comfortable and has done this multiple times before. Um, these days it's, you know, with the internet, it makes it sort of fairly easy to check that. Word of mouth is always a, it's not a perfect indicator, but it is a, a pretty good indicator. Um, conversations with people can be illuminating um, if the person the, the lawyer is asking you the right, what seemed to you like the right questions. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure some people can fake it very, very well, but it, you know, that, that conversation, I mean, you could ask to see the work product, but maybe for the layman that, that wouldn't, that wouldn't tell you much. But if, if you can find out that whether the person has done a lot of deals if for reputable folks, you know, I, that's probably about as, as, as good as you're going to get. In law, as in everything, or most things these days still, you basically, you basically get what you pay for. So if you, if you, if there's an outlier, either high or, or low, you know, someone who promises, you know, if a, what seems like a regular lawyer quotes a price or a couple lawyers or a few lawyers quote prices within a pretty tight range. And you find someone who's going to do it for a third of the price. And it's like hiring roofers. Uh, you know, just don't expect to be dry the next time that it rains. So <laughs> yeah, um, I, think, I think that's a good point. You know, you can, a lot of times it seems like you get what you pay for. Uh, I think a lot of people are worried about, you know, overpaying for more than what they need. Um, and, and how do you, how do you, how do you protect yourself like against that aspect of it um, in a world that you might not know a whole lot about, right? And, and um, the way well, I will, I will tell you that I, I, and I think other lawyers in this space, or maybe I shouldn't speak with others. I do almost all my work in the syndication field on, on a fixed fee basis these days, um, which is pretty new. Um, 
you know, 10 years ago, we, we rarely used fixed fees. People just, we just kept track of our hours and the clients paid us whatever, hopefully, whatever our hours added up to. That is no longer the case. And, and so um, there's never a surprise in my charge. And I, I think a number of other lawyers are, are doing, it, doing it that way also. Um, also. Um, so you're not going to think you were going to spend 20 and you end up spending 70. I mean, that should, that should never happen. That can never happen with, with, uh, fixed fee. Well, how do you structure the, the, how do you structure the fixed fee, um, to ensure that? Cause there's like, there's opportunities on both sides, right. For, you know, um, sometimes I've talked to attorneys about that. I say, Hey, there's no way I could do fixed fee. Cause I'm worried about the clients that are going to, you know, try to take hours and hours and hours until like my fee gets yeah. reduced to $25 an hour. And by that time I should have just gotten a different job. You know, how do you guys <laughs> mitigate those risks? I build it into the fixed fee parameters. Okay. I'm very specific about what I'm doing and what I'm not doing. And I build in a certain number of hours of talking with the client about it. Um, so that if it extravagantly exceeds that, I could say, hey, you know, we've reached our limit. Now, I will say that in my own practice, never of all the many, many dozens of fixed fees I've done, I have never enforced that provision, even if I've gone over it a little, just because I didn't feel the client was taking advantage of me. But, um, you know, right. yeah, you got it. Yeah. You got it. You got to build it all in. Yeah. That that's really, really neat. I would say that um, that's something that we do too at, at Royal Legal is that we are building, we build everything into a fixed fee model and then we share exactly what everything that's included, you know, with that. And um, we have unlimited access options um, to some parts of the staff, but not to others. So you get a limited access to like our sales and support staff and those people that can answer the 95% of questions that come through because they're ones that we get time and time, you know, time and time again. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, and then there's also stuff that's like, okay, well, we'll give you unlimited amount of that. But if you need us to do actually legal research, compose legal documents, et cetera, then we got to kick that to an attorney, right? And then that has to come as to a separate billable. So, but all of that's laid out front. And I think that's really what's on the cutting edge of what's happening now with law and with, um, with how you can tell with what professionals are on, uh, are really about delivering high value, um, like dial movers that are exactly what people need. Because as professionals, we know that our client has to have what it is they need to be able to do the next step in their project. And we actually have to know that better than they do in most cases, if we're going to charge a fixed fee, because ultimately at the end of the day, they gave us money to get from point A to point B yep. and control the cost. So all the risk is really on us to say that we know yeah, it better which is, and we know what to charge. Which is where it should be, right? We're the ones who are supposed to know. And it doesn't do us as lawyers any good to sort of be cute about fixed fees. Okay, here's a fixed fee. Um, of course, the client doesn't know what's required. So we have a list of things, but we don't include a few things that we know really he needs. And at the end, we say, ah, oh, well, if you, you know, if you want your car to start, you know, that's, <laughs> that's extra. That's a <laughs> right, you want, oh, you want, you want brakes. Um, but who's happy with that, right? You know, the, then the client is rightfully pissed off. And what did we do it for? You know, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't do, you, you have to, you really do have to include everything because um, you want a, a happy client. <laughs> that's, the, that's the end of the day.
That, that's exactly life's, what I think. Life's you, too you, short you know? to try to, to nickel and dime people, even if that were, you know, your personality. It just, it just doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. And um, I think that's a, it speaks also to the, the level of an organization too, about saying like, who are the people that are running these organizations are ones that are saying, you know, I'm really about giving stuff where I can deliver super high value to people and how it doesn't make my life miserable and trying to fight back and forth with people about a few yeah. dollars here or there. Um, because on the other side of it, on a professional side, um, if you're really good at what you do, then, you know, money can only buy you so much happiness. And then it's like, how much BS do I have to put up with, you know, with that, right? And that can be, you know, part of like these relationships that we have into yeah. it. So when you can get and really I, clear about how much you help people, then it's like everything, all that melts away. There's no, there's no risk of loss. There's no fear of like, maybe I'm going to get screwed here somehow or anything like that from the client's perspective. I think it's really, it's really great that you're doing it that way. Well, and, you know, I, I guess I'd like to say, oh, that was entirely by choice. But of course, here's what's happening. The, the dynamics of crowdfunding, as I said when I got on my soapbox at the beginning, crowdfunding is just the internet coming to the capital formation industry. And when the internet comes to an industry, whether it's Barnes & Noble or Yellow Cab Company or you know, all, all the others, the internet is ruthless. It drives down costs and promotes efficiency and eliminates middlemen. So in today's internet world, right, where everyone with a internet connection can find me or another lawyer who does this work all the time, um, you know, if, if you're out there uh, being really wasteful and churning hours and not really knowing what you're doing, the internet, as ruthless as it is, is not is going to not be kind to you. So all of us professionals, we are we're no more uh, exempt from the internet rule than booksellers are. the The internet makes us work efficiently. It makes us create templates, it requires standardization, and that is good for everyone. I mean, yeah, it, I, I guess it's, it's harder in some ways for some lawyers to make money in this world, um, but it rewards the efficient, and it's terrific. As yeah, a, well, I think know, it actually raises the whole bar. Yeah, it, it really I, I, does. I, I see a lot of people are like, ah, oh, it destroys a profession, blah, blah, blah. No, man, what it is, it's actually really hard to standardize stuff and to do it well where it's a really good yes. product. And standardization is actually how you increase the level of quality. And we always are standardizing the things that are easiest to do and that it eliminates all of that work. And so what that should tell us is that if we're really about attorneys being really good at their job, we want to standardize and push out because we want attorneys thinking about really hard problems. We don't want them thinking about just stamping out the same super easy problem over and over again, because those aren't the things that people need help with. So we need to get our best yeah. brains thinking about the hardest problems that we can. Or to put it a different way, what happens with technology is it drives human beings up the value chain. Yeah. Right. It, it <laughs> takes away the stuff at the bottom of the value chain because the machine can do that faster. And it moves us 
up and up and up and hopefully there are more <laughs> there are more steps up there <laughs> well uh, there's always more steps right because <laughs> there's the steps only run out when we've always we've solved all the world's problems and i don't think yeah. that that's happening anytime soon you know yeah not not today i guess not, not today uh, that that's awesome mark um well i i think we're at the end of the episode you know here today and i um just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on the show uh, this has been uh great to have you here i'd love to have you again um maybe again here on ren where we can take a deeper dive into uh, some of the pieces or in one of the other shows right now we're, we're doing um a new show every single day on single family homes multifamily, um, wow. entrepreneurialism uh, wealth building, just general wealth building. How do you do that? As well as growth, the growth that you need as a human being that's outside of business. And we have a new show every day that we're, um, uh, those are the five categories. So that's Monday through Friday, uh, that I do. Wow. That's incredible. Those. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm really looking, you know, we were just starting it here. This is actually our first week to do it. So, uh, we actually did the multifamily show here earlier today for anybody catching this. If you come into the Facebook page, it's always put on Facebook Live. It's also going to be on iTunes, Stitcher, um, also on YouTube, as well as the Royal Legal Solutions website. So um, this will get hopefully a lot of exposure here uh, for you, Mark. And for everybody that wants to reach out to you um, uh, for your help, what is the best way for them to do that? The best way is to go to my blog, which is, well, you can find it easily just by typing Mark Roderick crowdfunding into Google. But if you want a URL, it is um, crowdfund, spelled the way it sounds, and then attny.com. So crowdfund, abbreviation for attorney, attny.com. You will recognize the photo. That's me. And of course, there's a contact button somewhere on there. Um, and shoot me an email and we will find a time to talk. That's, that's the best way to do it. Awesome. That's great, guys. And those that will also have all of those links inside of the show notes um, of this show and we'll have it everywhere for you guys. So if you're just listening or in the car or whatever it is, just go to the show notes um, and we'll have links uh, for that. Uh, so you can get a hold of, of Mark and um, take advantage of his wealth of experience in this field while being able to help you efficiently with fixed price uh, syndication uh, fund creation. Uh, so thank you so much, Mark, for coming on the show here today. Uh, guys, this is Scott thank Royal Smith much. with Royal Legal Solutions uh, signing off with you uh, for everybody here today. Look forward to catch you guys on the next episode. In the meantime, take advantage of our free LLC program that we have coming out. Seriously, free LLCs for everybody in the entire country. Um, if all you have to do is contact us and we'll set you guys up with that. Uh, as well as, as watch these other shows that we have every day at noon uh, central pushing out to Facebook Live. Um, and for our members of Royal Legal Solutions, you actually will get a special link uh, to be able to come in and sit on the interviews and ask me and the interviewee uh, questions live for anything that you want to know about. And that's available for every member of uh, Royal Legal Solutions. That's all for this Bad Beats episode. I'm your host, Scott Royal Smith with the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. Did you see yourself in any part of that story? I know I did. If you enjoyed the show, leave a review to help clue in the sleeping masses of what they need to know and what we all need reminders of. Do your good deed for the day. Thanks, and I'll see you again soon.